every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and greetings on the penultimate day of the month. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Wednesday the 29th of November. This podcast, as always, is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, there were contrasting speeches Tuesday on the future path of interest rates from Fed board members Christopher Waller and Michelle Bowman ahead of the next FOMC meeting on December the 12th to the 13th. Christopher Waller, one of the Fed's most hawkish policymakers, signaled that interest rates were unlikely to rise further and could be cut if inflation continued to slow. Mr. Wallace said, I'm increasingly confident that policy is currently well positioned to slow the economy and get inflation back to the Fed's target of 2%. If we see disinflation continuing for several more months, you could then start lowering the policy rate. By contrast with Mr. Waller's remarks, Michelle Bowman, his fellow Fed governor, said on Tuesday she still thought the central bank would probably need to increase rates further to bring inflation down in a timely way. She argued that variables such as the strength of consumer spending and supply-side factors could keep inflation higher than expected. And she also warned that the neutral rate of interest, the level that neither stimulates nor depresses the economy, may have risen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hong Kong private home prices declined to their lowest level in more than five years in October as a weak economy and elevated interest rates took a heavy toll on demand for property. Prices fell 2.2% month-on-month, official data showed on Tuesday, bringing the year-to-date decline to almost 4%. But the decline was 0.2 percentage points smaller than the dip recorded in September, and prices are now at their lowest since March 2017. Charlie Munger, the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, died at the age of 99 on Tuesday morning at a California hospital. Warren Buffett, Berkshire's chief executive, said in a short statement that the company couldn't have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration, wisdom and participation. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. With a view from Japan is Dan Kerrigan, CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities Japan. And please subscribe to my daily newsletter, which contains updates on business and finance news from the Asia-Pacific region and also affecting Asia. You'll find that at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks were higher following contrasting speeches on the future path of interest rates from Fed board members Christopher Waller and Michelle Bowman ahead of the next FOMC meeting on December the 12th to 13th. The S&P 500 inched higher by 0.1% to 4,555. The Dow added 84 points or 0.2% to close at 35,417. The tech-heavy Nasdaq Composite gained a third of a percent to end the session at 14,282. Treasury bonds extended their November rally and yields fell following Christopher Waller's speech. The rate-sensitive two-year Treasury yield tumbled 14 basis points to 4.75%, its lowest level since August the 10th. The benchmark 10-year yield dropped five basis points to 4.34%, that's the lowest since September the 20th. The US dollar hit a three-month low on Tuesday. The decline in the dollar accelerated following Mr. Waller's speech. The US dollar index lost the 103 handle, tumbling 0.4% to 102.77. And the index is on track to post its biggest loss of the year this month. The index has slid 3.7% since November began. Gold prices rose to a new six-month high on Tuesday and extended their November gain to almost 3%. 
spot prices rose for a fourth consecutive session, climbing 1.3% to $2,040 an ounce. That's the highest level since early May. And the latest move takes the precious metals gains since hitting a seven-month low at the start of October to just over 13% and leaves it just under 2% below its all-time high, which was $2,075 an ounce, which was reached in August 2020. Oil prices rebounded on Tuesday after four days of losses. Ahead of Thursday's delayed OPEC Plus meeting, the Brent contract for January rose 2.1% Tuesday to $81.68 a barrel. Hong Kong shares extended their slide into a third day. The Hang Seng Index was down 171 points, or 1%, at a three-week low of 17,354. The Tech Index fell 0.8%. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index fell 1.7% as traders continued to monitor the fallout from a criminal probe into China's shadow banking giant Xiongxi Enterprise Group. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was 0.2% firmer at 3,039. Looks like the decline in Hong Kong stocks is going to continue. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 22 points at the open. That's 0.1%. Looks like the index will start the day around 17,330. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Halfway through the week, the final week of November, we're coming up towards Christmas. Let's welcome our guests this morning. We have with us Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning, Enzio. Morning, morning, Peter. And also with us is Andrew Sullivan, who's the founder of Asian Market Sense. Good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Um, let's talk about those two rather contrasting uh, speeches from Fed governors. Important in many ways because they are both voting members of the FOMC, so their opinions do matter. First of all, Christopher Waller, who traditionally has been one of the Fed's most hawkish policymakers is now signaling that interest rates are unlikely to rise further and they could be cut if inflation continues to slow. He says, I'm increasingly confident that policy is currently well positioned to slow the economy and get inflation back to the Fed's target of 2%. He said, if we see disinflation continuing for several more months, and he said that might be three months, four months or five months, then you could start to see interest rate cuts. Now, in contrast with Mr. Waller's remarks, Michelle Bowman, another Fed governor, said on Tuesday she thought the central bank would probably need to increase rates further to bring inflation down in a timely way. And she argued that variables such as the strength of consumer spending and supply side factors could keep inflation higher than expected. And she also warned that the neutral rate of interest, which is the level that neither stimulates nor depresses the economy, may have risen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Enzio, what are we supposed to do with these Two rather contrasting remarks from two Fed governors. Remember, Cole Porter's song, You Say Tomato, I Say Tomato. <laughs> yeah, um, in other words, good analogy. it's just, it's always... All words. Just all words. Semantics. And the simple fact is that when you and I discussed and when we all discussed the October inflation rate, we it was very clear that the total inflation rate was um, falling by 14%. Of, and in terms of its its rate of change, whilst the core inflation rate was only falling by 2.4%, which means in simple talk that the um, actual inflation is still quite firm. It is above that 2% target that the Fed keeps on talking about. So my view is that the woman, as usual, is probably right. 
um, in this case, that of um, <laughs> the structural inflation problems that we've had that we've rattled on about for a long time, like food, supply chain change, supply chain disruptions, those things will continue. And so I'm siding more with the woman than the guy this time. But whether the gender or not, the, the simple fact is that these are the traders, and you've been one of them, Peter. Have to snatch at whatever's out there, and then they then they sort of trade off the position and, and hope to make a buck or two. <laughs> and the market isn't on your side, Enzio. No, I'm the afraid. market's on. I'm on the losing side. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, do you want to put a leg in one of these two camps? Well, I think I mean I think she's right to an extent. I mean that we are seeing a great amount of strength in the in the U.S. consumer. But I think interestingly, from this weekend, we've seen that a lot of it's on this uh, buy now, pay later, mm. which means that possibly that we're starting to see some cracks in that. Uh, you know, a lot of those you know excess savings that were built up over COVID have actually been spent, mm, uh, and people haven't really. You know, when they walk into Target, they're not thinking, how am I going to pay for this? They're thinking, this is a good bargain because it's 40% discount uh, and they want it. Um, and Does that, that bill... change when the bill drops through the letterbox later on, the credit card bill, and they yeah. see for this 20% discount they're getting on prices, they're paying 30% interest rates? I don't think anybody thinks about that. Yeah. I mean, as long as they can pay the bill. And I mean, again, we're yeah. going to start seeing them not pay the whole bill. Uh, yeah. And that's the thing. They will pay off part of it. Uh, and that's where a lot of people don't see the 30% interest. You know, they just, you know, you know, sit in front of the telly and watch the next <laughs> advert for the next thing they're going to go and yes. buy. The, the shopping season's been really extended this year, hasn't it? It's lasted really from the beginning of November almost until, well, it seems like it's going on right up until sort of Christmas. So this is a sort of long holiday thing. But I'm just wondering how long can this consumer spending go? Surely the consumer has run out of money. And if, as you say, Andrew, it's do, doing it on, you know, buy now, pay later terms, which are at a record high, um, it doesn't seem to me that's good news for the consumer in the long run. Well, no, I mean, you know, someday you have to pay the piper, as they say. Um, and that and that will come home to roost, and I think probably you know, you say that the, you know the, the retailers are trying to get that money out of the consumer as quickly as possible. That's why they're offering these discounts. I think the real telling time comes you know after Christmas, those Boxing Day sales. That's when the uh, the retailers are really trying to clear the inventory. They will have bought a lot of this stuff in on special prices so they can offer these special discounts. Um, in order to try and make a few margins. I mean, and those margins are getting increasingly thinner. Mm. Are retailers making money here or are they discounting so much that this hasn't been a great season for them? I think they're still making money, as I say. Quite often they'll buy extra stuff in at a cheap rate but you know, and sell it at a cheap rate. So that, you know, they might not buy the Sony brand, they'll buy a second or third mm. rate brand that they can discount at 50% and still make you know, a reasonable margin on. Uh, and then they hope that some people will buy the Sony brand where they're making their existing margins. Mm. Um, it's very much a matter of trying to get people in the door. And of course... Online, it's even easier to do that because you don't actually have to physically take delivery of the stock. You can do this straight out of the manufacturer's warehouse. So, so in that respect, you know, the, the new online industry makes it easier for them to m maintain small margins, but important ones. I think adding to that that the, um, the inventory clearance also has to be a theme because with the rising costs of credit, mm -hmm. you don't want too many. In, you don't want to be financing too many inventories, and so I think that that's also part of this slash and burn strategy on the part of the retailers, just to get the stuff out of the door. When, when did sorry, think, Andrew? Well, I was going to say, and I think there's still an, an element in the U.S. because of the the shipping 
you know, debacle over COVID, where a lot of things were over ordered, and and some of that, yes. some of that, some of that inventory, you know, for for very little, you know, items that maybe only sold ten a year, they bought twenty because they didn't know when they were going to get the next. They've still got those extra ten sitting there, so there is yes. still a big inventory imbalance yeah, yeah, there. Good point. Good point. When, when do you think Enzio, the the US consumer, runs out of steam? Because almost exclusively now around the world you know it's the u.s consumer is doing well whereas you look at other countries the the consumer um really is uh, is in decline and, and they're holding on to their money now i think it's the american power of positive thinking if i hear if i go back to my days in america <laughs> that they're really running on empty already mm -hmm. um and so it's only because of these credit card deals and this this culture of being in debt it, it doesn't it, it to to Brits or Germans, it doesn't. It, it's not such a good thing to be in debt with the Americans. There are even new books out, the new economy, that debt deficits don't matter. It's actually very good to be in deficit. Germany's being chided for having for trying to rein in its deficits. So um, I think it's it's a cultural thing, and they are running. But I think that they are already running on empty. Myself, mm. and I think the other thing there is. I mean, we're seeing this at a time when gas prices are, are low. I mean, yes. ah, typically point, the yeah. the U.S. That's consumer cut, yeah. pulls their horns in when. When oil prices go up, and they because they actually see that money going out, uh, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. Right. Also, I was talking with the toy retailer at the weekend, a very large one actually. The the toy retailer is not his corpulence, and um, I found that the um, that people are actually getting they're getting hurt by tax hikes already. So, and in, 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 well, in, in the form of inflation hikes. So, I think that that's that's also part of this. So it sounds like then, the, from what you're saying, the consumer not only has run down their savings to zero, mm. they're now actually going into debt yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. continue to fund yeah, this yeah. Uh, this buying spree yeah, that they're yeah. going on at the moment. Yeah, with the view that today's the first day of the rest of my life. Yeah. This never ends well, does it? <laughs> no, it never ends well. Coming back, um, Enzio, to the, the two Fed speeches, mm. what would make you change your mind and start to think that, you know, now is the time to cut interest rates? Oh, Really, once you see the core inflation, the, the, the inflation that they want below 2%, I don't know what we're going to agree and call it, once we see that really being sort of in sight and, and these non-commodity um, prices actually properly falling, but I don't think that's going to happen for some time because of the structural supply-side problems, the supply-side because of the wars, in the um, the food the weather with the food prices laziness with the wages so it's not enough just to see this series of declines in the core reading which we've had really no. since April it's been mm. coming down almost every yes. month now since April what what you're saying is it's actually got to get to two percent before the Fed should yeah, be cutting rates because they've lost so much credibility already that if they also then waver on that they first of all bunged up by being too loose too long now they're going to be um, too loose, too fast by mm. cutting yet again. Could they have um, over? Have, could they have over tightened? And the risk is actually we don't stop at two percent. The inflation rate carries on going down to zero and negative. I don't think they will be that drastic. I don't think that the politics will allow for that. Mm. So I'm, I think that there will be a lot of political pressure by Mr. Trump, particularly for that the, for those people at the Fed to cut the gas prices until somebody says actually they're in charge of interest rates not gas prices because mm. the Fed always 
overdoes it both ways, yes, doesn't it? Yes. It's too late to react, and then yes. it over-tightens, and as a result, you get these wild swings in inflation. They go all the way up, and then they drop a lot lower than people think um, as well. In, but um, I would argue, that not, on Andrew's view, but I think that the, the Fed probably errs more on the side of looseness than on tightness. Mm. And I think, but I mean, I mean, the, the, the good thing the Fed has got is it's actually got room to cut rates. Yes. I mean, this is something that, that yeah. at all that it hasn't actually had for a number of years because it's been at zero. Mm. Yes. So yeah, unlike yeah, the Bank point. of Japan and, and others, oh. there, there is plenty of policy manoeuvre. But Jerome Powell has always said he would rather over tighten than stay too loose. So yes. He's sort of, but he's but one of many voices. Mm. And, and also, I mean, he's he, you know he's, he he is, he needs the market to believe that he's going to stay higher for longer. Otherwise, you know, the market assumes he's going to cut, they, and, and the markets yeah. price that in they, in advance. Will, yeah. uh, and then, then borrowing costs come down, and that undermines his whole position. Mm. So, you know, regardless of what he really thinks, he has to maintain that party line at the headline level. And you do have rising bond yields, as we all know, you, you in particular, Peter, with your ex-bond mm. trading Although, that, that tightening that yes. um, Mr. Powell was relying on to help him, because, you know, he was basically saying it was, a, it was a equivalent to another 25 basis yes. point rate hike, that has abated. We've lost 75 basis points now I off the two-year yield. I think that's a mirage. I think that once that, and let's discuss this briefly. I think that once the Treasury starts issuing more paper because of these debt shenanigans going on on the Hill, and the private, the corporates, because of lacking profitability, have to issue more and more debt. Well, if you increase more supply, the price goes down, the yield goes up. Mm. Mm. So, do you think um, Treasury yields, they, the 10 year yield, it mm. got as high as 5.02%, yes. just above 5% um, in October? No, uh, now uh, it's at 4.34 percent so it's it. come off 65 basis yes. points the two-year yield um, uh, which hit uh, five uh, is at f- uh, yes it hit 5.2 percent yeah. uh, and currently that's down um, the, the two-year yield is at 4.75 percent at the mm. moment so there's been quite a big sort of reversal backing yeah. up of these these treasury um, yields but do you think this is temporary do you think temporary uh, I, that, that's why, because I, I just think that I know that some, some extremely bright people have gone out there saying that debt to GDP ratios don't have an influence on bond yields, which I found interesting. The person had researched his work. But I also find that it just common sense that if you issue more paper, the price goes down, the yield goes up. It's, it's simple household economics. And I think you've also got you know, mm. people that are investing in bonds. You know, they've got that dilemma. You know, the thing is, if you're investing in bonds, you're investing in bonds, you're always investing in bonds. It's the matter of where on the curve you're investing in yes. these. Mm. And the timing yes. element, I think, is becoming much more important to a lot of these yes. people. That, that two-year, you know, historically, it hasn't been where you've wanted a lot of your duration. So, and there will be a, cu- a time when you can't reinvest weekly at 5%. You've yes. missed that and you may well have missed further down the curve. Yep. So they are going to start moving for more duration uh, and that will have its own impact. If yep. you've been an investor in Treasury bonds this year, you've had quite a wild ride oh. because at one stage we were on track for third year of losses in a row, which historically has never ever happened mm. before in the United States. But that's completely reversed after spending most of 2023 underwater. Mm. The US Treasury index is now showing a positive return year to date. Well, I mean, that's just the way that you know, this market moves. It's you know, an exponential return if you get it right, and uh, bad luck if you don't. <laughs> like private equity. Yeah. It, well, One it, in ten, yeah. 
I mean, it's certainly dramatic moves. What about then the, the US dollar as well? Because that's the other um, asset that's really reacted. And they chose, interestingly, dollar, the US dollar and bond yields reacted to what Christopher yes. Waller said, not to what Michelle Bowman um, said. So we saw a big slump in the US dollar. It's now at a three-month uh, low, and the U.S. dollar is, is on track for basically its worst uh, month yeah. of the the year. It's gonna it's slid about three point seven percent since the beginning of November. So that will make it the worst performance since November twenty twenty two. What what's the outlook for the U.S. dollar here? Well, I think it's been an incredibly overcrowded trade, uh, mm. and the moment you start <clears throat> to see a crack, you get a hundred people racing for a single door, um, and you get this this. Mm. Big swing, um, and, and I think probably as we go through December, that will you know ease off and as, as people take a more considered view. But there's obviously a lot of people that are leveraged up into that trade and have been for some time, uh, and so I think you know to see an early crack, that's that's the reaction you expect. But this is what the Fed fund futures markets are saying at the moment. 33% chance that the central bank will yes. cut rates in March yeah. 2024, 65% mm. chance that they're going to cut by May next year, compared to 42% before Christopher Waller's speech. So a big reaction in Fed fund futures, in Treasury bonds, in US dollar um, to, that, uh, to that speech. But it's completely out of line with what basically the Fed has been saying itself in its dot plots. I think there's a lot of wishful thinking going on, and I think again a lot of cherry picking the facts. Well, look, these rates are down, so let's let's do this. So I just I just find I'm going to stick with the story that if you increase the amount of treasury bonds that have to be issued, treasury bonds and and corporate bonds, the price of the bond goes down, the yield goes up, full mm -hmm. stop, and that I think will halt some of this dollar decline. I think the Bank of Japan wants, by the way, the yen to strengthen a bit because they're scared of imported inflation. So this kind of ties into the Japanese monetary policy, um, but I do think that the U.S. yields will rise, and I don't, and I don't quite know whether the Fed is actually at the end. I think another twenty-five basis points on the Fed funds rate. Mm. So you're not fighting the Fed; you're fighting the markets. Yeah, yeah. Well, they've been more. They've been. They've been, to put it in terrible English, wronger than the Fed. I mean, mm. they keep on. They they keep on rever but they get to reverse positions right away. I mean, I think the other thing you've got to bear in mind here is actually that uh, you know when the Bank of Japan does change its policy, which we expect mm. them to do next year, that's going to introduce a, a completely new yes. element into the equation that we haven't seen for 15 years. Yes. Um, and you will see, I think, a lot of Japanese money coming out of America uh, and being repatriated, and that will have a huge impact. Yes. Uh, you've also got the fact that mm. China is trying to de-dollarize itself as far as it can as well. So, you know, people have been in the U.S. dollar for a long time because it's been safe and secure, but we'll, 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 we will enter a new new regime when when the uh, BOJ change policy. Yes. And when that happens, we're presumably going to see a lot more volatility in the yen. But are, are the markets ready for the BOJ to change, uh, to change its stance, do you think? Because, as, as you mentioned, there could be some quite significant capital flows, couldn't there, into, into Japan? Well, I mean, I, mean, I think you has done very well. I mean, he, he, he gave them an 18-month window. Um, he obviously isn't going to do it on the 18th month. He's going to do it before that so he doesn't get front run. But he's giving people time to, to, to think about this. And, you know, increasingly he's been coming out with statements supporting the fact that things are changing and they are seeing things change. So people should be preparing for it. One, the, the thing that's changing for me in terms of my economic clock is that we've had this excess supply of money for many, many years. We all know that. 
The excess supply of goods is abating, however. The retail sales bottomed. They contracted by an annual 15% earlier in 2020. Now they're actually rising by about 5% a year. And the market has, I think, tripled or doubled since 2022. Yeah, so, so this has already been priced into the market, I think. Mm. And I think the other thing is you know, the cheap yen has been a huge mm. boom for Japan. I mean, we've seen you know, tourists and certainly the Chinese going there and buying significantly, yes. and that's going to have an impact. Mm. Yeah. And what about U.S. equities? Very strongly correlated to that Treasury bond yield um, at the moment. I mean, we're not far off from a new all-time high in the S&P 500, maybe about 5% away, um, I think. People making a big bet that this rally is going to extend into the end of the year. What do you think? Well, I mean, we've still got the Magnificent Seven you know, generating <laughs> yes. an awful lot of that. Holding up the market. Yeah. We've, we've also got the unknown element still about AI. I mean, I think it, it will be a positive for a lot of businesses and a lot of uh, sectors, but probably not in, in the immediate short term. We've still got to learn how to use it and where to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have seen you know, in, in the recent earnings, there was a slight broadening of, of, uh, of uh, earning power coming through from some of the others but there's also a number of cracks appearing and i think uh, you know we cannot just rely on seven stocks to to drive a market um and i think increasingly investors will be looking at that and that probably because of charlie mungford's death i mean people will be looking back at the warren buffett you know value investing again yes do you think that's going to come back, value investing? I mean, it's been out of favour, hasn't it, this year, certainly with the performance of those magnificent seven. But, but I mean, you just look at you know, Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, they, they've done extremely well through all of this. I mean, they have been, you know, they were late to buying, uh, going into Apple, but they bought it. They, they waited to understand it. And I think, you know, we've seen too much momentum trading probably in a lot of those American stocks. There is still value there, but people have got to do a little bit more research rather than just following the trend, I think. It is interesting, isn't it, that Warren Buffett is selling, though, quite a lot of his major holdings uh, at the moment. So that sort of rather suggests he's struggling to find value. Well, he's always said, you know, there's no point in, you know, just because prices are cheap, that doesn't mean there's value there. Mm. But equally, it's interesting that, you know, he's still increasing his exposure to Japan. He's he's raised more money there. He expects that market to come back. Whereas, you know, he's done very well out of the US for the last 15 years. But as you say, because of so much cheap government money, there hasn't been the reliance on people like Warren Buffett with their cash piles to bail companies out. So they've found other ways of doing it. So he's looking for markets where he can actually use that cash advantage. And what about here in Hong Kong? The Hang Seng Index is up 1.4% uh, for uh, the month, but for the year to date, it's down now 12.3%. Mm. Still the worst performer out of the major equity indices globally. I seem to be saying this every day, mm. but it's mm. it's true. The Shanghai Composite uh, has basically given up all of its November mm. gains, or almost all of them. It's up just 0.7% for the month. It's down 1.6% uh, year to date. The MSCI China down close to 10% year to date. Well. Um, can we be optimistic as we go into the end of the year and into next no, year or not? No, 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 no. No? I, I'm not even going to allow Andrew to talk. Um, <laughs> no, I, don't, I just don't think that... I think that as long as this government diktat of we don't like the private sector, we, don't, we may say we do, we don't like the private sector, we don't want the private sector to create jobs, 
as long as that stays, you can forget all stimuli and stimulus and all this kind of stuff because it ain't going to work. It's like dropping a hot, like a cold water on a, on a hot stone. It's just not going to work. And that's where I think the key problem is. Now, you do find a number of people looking for value in China. Yes, on a five-year view, sure. I mean, look in, look into it, but not on a on a on a short-term. View. I mean, that's the, 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 you're obviously referring to the mainland there, where yeah, the government is. Yes. But do you think that maybe is also coming true in Hong Kong as well? That Hong Kong is increasingly, um, you know, disfavoring, if you like, uh, sort of private businesses. Or do you think we're we're different? It's going into they're they're trying to, in their sycophantic style, they're trying to emulate the Chinese government in the mainland by mm. doing what they think the Chinese want them to do. In English is a very good case in point where they th they said a lot of C.H. Chung's government, I think they think we should speak Mandarin, let's not speak English. And I see this happening more and more, This these diktats. Now we're all supposed to smile ahead of the direct, the district council elections. That was um, John Lee's edict of two days ago. If we smile, then we will vote. That's interesting. Um, so. Um, I think that that is, it's creeping into Hong Kong insidiously and not just because of you know whom in China. I think the problem we have is China, you know, Hong Kong has always been the salesman for China. Uh, yeah, and if, if, if the market in China is depressed and uh, mm. not working, there's not an awful lot that Hong Kong can do. Mm. I mean, we don't have a, a huge domestic market. We don't import a huge amount for ourselves. We've always been the salesman for the rest of China. And I think within China, you know, the government is still reticent about fiscal policy, largely because, you know, last time, go back to 2015, it opened the floodgates and it, and it, and it got a bubble that it, it's taken it another eight years to sort of unwind. So it's very much very wary about doing that mm. again. A lot of that money ended up in property, which hasn't worked out very well for them. It didn't go into high tech, which is where it would have loved it to go into. So it, it's got real issues in trying to you know, do a fiscal policy. It, it realises it's going to have to let some money out, but it wants to be more cautious. It wants to be in trying to direct that. But that's very, very difficult. And, and as NCO says, I mean, the trouble is Hong Kong has survived on laissez-faire entrepreneurialship. And uh, if you don't allow the markets to work that way, then it's not going to happen. Well, the other, the other problem is that, of course, the cartels keep on asphyxiating this place. I mean, the the price of a chicken in Shenzhen. I know this is a relevant topic. Is fifteen dollars, and here it's two hundred and fifty. I wonder, I wonder where it's cheaper. And it's, I mean, the other thing, you, know, you, we wonder why we're not getting tourists. But I mean, hotel rates are back to pre-COVID levels, yes. if not higher. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, retail hasn't come down, which is why Hong Kongers go over to Shenzhen because prices there have come down. And it was interesting to hear mm. Biden yesterday saying that prices in America have to come down and people that are price gouging, you know, stop it. Uh, Hong Kong really needs to learn that lesson. But I think unless the, you know, the, the, the retail rents and the property market actually do revert and see, you know, significant drops, that's, you know, that's, the equation just doesn't work. And that just won't happen, in my mind, until the cartels are really taken head on. And it's, it's, I, I'm not seeing that happen. And I think, well, I think you're seeing the opposite. I mean, yes. you, look, you look at the fact that Sun and Kai is bringing forward its, uh, you know, its uh, selling uh, programs. They are worried that this market is, is going to go further down. So they're trying to get as much property out of the yes. door, pre-sold yes. as they can. Yeah. You always know when they're confident because then they'll, they won't pre-sell. They'll wait till, wait till its completion date. Um, and completion permits. So they'll hold on to it for the last minute if they think prices are going up, but they'll pre-sell 
sell it as soon as they can if they think oh, prices are going down. Yeah. And uh, uh, Hong Kong home prices, according to the data out yesterday, they're now at their lowest level since March 2017, down 4% um, year to date. And I'm sure that's not unconnected with the with where Highbor um, is, which mm. is one month Highbor, of course, linked to a lot of um, Hong Kong mortgages. It's at 5.53%. Now, two years ago, when the Fed first started yeah. raising interest rates, yeah. one month Highbor was 0.1%. But the thing you've got to remember here is though the high the high deposits that people yes, have to be yes, put exactly. down do protect the bank. So it's not there's not going to be yeah. an, a crisis from this. It just hurts people's wealth. And again, that's why people aren't outspending. Mm. You know, effectively their mortgage. And again, we're not fixed rate mortgages like the US. We're we're floating rate mortgages. So these things move quite quickly. People's spending comes mm. down quite quickly, and hence they go over the border to Shenzhen because they can get a cheap chicken. Yeah, I think cheap chicken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, no, and no down no down payment. Yeah. There was an interesting story, an interesting article in the Financial Times earlier this week. Um, um, which may be an indication of how Hong Kong is changing. Deloitte's and KPMG, yes. the two audit and consulting firms, they're asking staff to use burner phones now when they come mm. to Hong Kong because they're worried that maybe the authorities uh, could get data, confidential data mm. out of them, or they could be mm. um, hacked. Um, it's sort of a rather a worrying sign, isn't it? That you that you don't imagine that people you you can know people do that when they mm. go to mainland mm. China, but now doing it when they come to Hong Kong as well or to America. Well, we are we are part of China. We're yeah, yeah. we're one country, two systems. But that means we're one country. Yeah. Um, and I think you know I think it's been heightened by people's awareness of the national security law. They've seen you know how people have uh, you know disappeared or been taken over the border information has been you know curtailed in china so it, it's a worry mm. so if the risk basically if if companies are seeing the risk of being in hong kong the same as in mainland china we're sort of losing our identity aren't we we're no longer this city um which has all of these western attributes and was different from the rest of china we're now a city that's basically the same as the rest well of that's mainland again china. because of this preemptive obedience i think is plays a major role then uh, tied in with that, then the lacking English, the cartel, the high prices, the lacking English. And I keep on saying to the government, why don't you do vocational training? The car ownership has gone up. The number of car repairmen has gone down. I think mm -hmm. we might have a mismatch here. Yes, we will study that. But I think the other thing is, you know, John Lee and the others and, 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 and President Xi want us to look to Guangdong. I mean, we've never yes. looked into Guangdong. There is no low-hanging fruit for Hong Kong in Guangdong. Um, the only thing we can help with is is buying chickens, probably. Yes. Um, our, our market has always been about selling China to the world, not chickens Hong Kong, Hong Kong. Not, not, China, not Hong Kong into China. Um, and that's, that's going to be a big problem for us, I think, going forward. But I think the other thing is you've seen for a number of years, well, for probably for the last year or so, that actually a lot of international companies in China have had to run a completely separate IT system in order to comply mm. with Chinese law. Um, and that, you know, the, the use of burner phones here in Hong Kong is, is merely an extension of that. that and that's going to make operating in China much more difficult. If you have to have a completely different separate standalone IT system and data system in no. China, then, then you can't use your own information. You can't transfer mm. it easily. And therefore, China then becomes, it's, it's back to the walled mm. kingdom. You, you deal in China for China and then you have the rest of the world. 
It's putting off executives coming to Hong Kong because they don't want to bring a, a, a separate phone, a different phone. They're just no. saying we don't come at all rather than, you know, go through all of that. Yeah. And, and they have other markets they can go successfully and do business in and, and do successful business in. I mean, you look at the growth in Dubai, um, Singapore, maybe less so. But I mean, the Middle East is becoming a much more influential center. As is Mexico. The mm, Chinese exports from Mexico, the Chinese exports from Chinese corporate exports from Mexico to the U.S. have, have I think, overtaken the Chinese Chinese exports to the U.S. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back door into you know getting around the sanctions yeah. and the limitations. Yeah, cheaper yes. chickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Very interesting discussion this morning. Good to speak with you both. You heard there, Enzio von Fall, capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield, and Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asia Market Sense. <laughs> I'm joined now by Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities over in Japan. Morning, Dan. Morning, Peter. Now, the uh, the rise in the Nikkei 225 continues um, unabated, up almost 30% so far this year, but it seems to be creating a, a new uh, group of shareholders, doesn't it? We've had a, a stealth move over the last several decades. People always talk about how Japan never misses a chance to miss an opportunity and I, I think they're going to be wrong this time. Um, just a couple of things. I think the headlines have been dominated by the sort of activism that we've seen from the Japan exchange. Mr. Yamaji himself has been quite public in uh, his scorn of those companies that are trading below book. And as we all know, there's been a lot of publicity about his campaign to roll out a name and shame list starting from next year. And we, there's been a lot of talk, as we had discussed last time, about yield curve control and what the BOJ is going to do. I actually believe that the BOJ has largely done its job. They've gotten inflation back to where it was in 1989, which is about 3.5%. So that has gotten rid of the perverse incentive that, to hoard cash that we've seen both from consumers and from companies. But there's just been a, a, a brief uh, mention that I'd like to make about the, just the change in the market structure. I mean, I think you and I are both old enough to remember when we were told when we were in school that one of the keys to the the Japanese success in their business model are these cross-held shares. And that Mm -hmm. allows management to take long-term views. And when you and I started in the business, Peter, the the cross-held shares were about 50% of all stock. Mm -hmm. And we've now known that that myth has been largely debunked. It doesn't necessarily allow long-term planning. It allows long-term complacency. And we have seen many corporations sell down those cross-held shares to where now those holdings are only about 5% of the total. And there have been two agencies that have taken up those shares, foreigners, which again, going back to 1989, only held about 5% of the shares on the Japan exchange. They make up about uh, more than a third or so, right around a third. And then the rise of the, the GPIF and the BOJ who have gone from about 5% holdings to about 16%. Now, the reason I think this is important is these shareholders, particularly the foreigners, are not passive. They are going to vote their shares. They are going to demand higher returns. And so I actually think that we're starting to see a rise in a mass activist class, which is, again, not necessarily activist as we know it in the West, but just uh, an interested group of shareholders that are going to demand higher returns. And we've seen that reflected overall in the the ROE levels in the market right now. So this is something that hasn't been talked about too much, but I think is is vitally important as 
we look out in the next three to five years. So these uh, these blocks of shares are now available and you know can fall into the hands of activist shareholders. Are they getting changes to the boards of companies that they want and it, kicking out it, chairman not, and CEOs? Yeah, it, it's not so much that. It's more just you you behave like a, a self interested. Uh, person in that you do care about what management is doing. And it's not as though you have to be the barbarian at the gate. Mm. It's just you, you want to get, again, what we see is normal behavior from managers uh, as the, in their accountability to investors. Mm. So, so this is not US style activism, but by Jap- Japanese standards, it may feel like it. Well, I, again, the, the activists here that have done well have been a little bit more constructivist. It hasn't been uh, buying a small stake and then demanding to be taken out of those shares at a higher level. It's just uh, how can we improve the returns for everybody? And again, another myth that has been debunked in the recent years is that the Japanese companies are run for stakeholders, but nobody's really been able to define clearly who a stakeholder is. Mm. And you know, in many cases, these publicly listed companies have been run for the private gain of a small cadre of people who are actually running these companies. But the, the other the main point is I would like to see really a, a shareholder class of, of just people here in Japan. Very few people actually directly own shares. They have some exposure through their pensions, but it's not nearly the sort of level that we see in the United States. And if you really want the greatest good for the greatest amount of people, I think we need to have a broader participation in the equity market. And in order for that to happen, these companies do indeed have to be run for shareholders. And so are you slowly, slowly seeing that? Are you seeing an increase in management buyouts as well now, as a, as a result of this it's new off, activism? Off a very, very low level. I, I think it's premature to say that, but it's just greater accountability. If we can get shareholders from sort of the seventh rung on the totem pole to maybe the fourth rung, then we'll have to see that as progress. But it, it does appear as though things are slowly going in the right direction, having you know been out here for. Of 30 plus years, it's nice to see a bit of progress. We just hope it's not another false dawn. Mm. And and do you think then that this uh, this campaign by the Tokyo Stock Exchange to basically name and shame companies, um, well, it's more naming those companies that are doing well, isn't it? They're on the they're on the list. If you get your book value back up above um, uh, one, but presumably um, it's for the companies that don't make the list. That's where the pressure is going to come. Is it going to work? We shall see. It all comes down to execution. We've had a number of grandiose plans laid out over the, the previous decades, and it all depends on do they follow through with it. So but there is something to be said in this culture for positive peer pressure. So it's something that we look forward to seeing how it's going to unfold. Mm. And, and are you optimistic about this rally that we've seen? I mean, it's taking us um, to what, a, a 30-year high or so, hasn't it, uh, over that it the last few months? Uh, can it continue? Well, if we can keep the snowball rolling, it's it's not. We all know that the the, the economy is not going to grow by more than one or one and a half percent here. We do know that, mm. but the ball's in, entirely in the court of corporate Japan. And and what is interesting is it seems as though the bureaucracies that are involved as well have a stake in wanting to see higher returns for all shareholders. So it just comes down to: is it going to happen in, on a blanket level of policy? No, it's going to be individual companies making decisions and those that choose to properly uh, resource their capital and and have sensible returns for their various businesses will be rewarded by the market and those that don't will just be left behind Mm. but at least at least there's a greater level of transparency i can see that there are a number of brokers that are hosting uh, investor conferences this week and i've seen a number of foreign 
portfolio managers here in, in Tokyo for the first time since sort of 2018. So there's certainly interest and it just, it depends on the will of the country if they want to keep things going. Mm-hmm. But I think the narrative has to change that this is actually in the interest of the broader society and not just for a few people. And is this persuading Japanese households, consumers to start putting some of their enormous cash pile of savings into the market? 50% of household savings are still in cash, and that's being eaten away at a 3% level every year with the, the CPI numbers now. So again, are they going to buy US equities? That seems to be the default option. But if we can get a shareholder class buying domestic equities in this market, it's going to be very exciting in the next number of years. The other thing that seems to be changing is um, young Japanese people. They they don't like this sort of post-war model of lifetime employment, do they? They're they're sort of um, looking around more for jobs, more willing to change jobs, more willing to start up their own companies. How significant a change is that? It's going to be gradual. It's not that's going to be a process and not an event, but it, there is certainly a different ethos among the people that are sort of under the age of 30 or so. We certainly see this in the United States to the point where college graduates coming out this year in the United States can are probably going to change not just jobs, but they're going to change careers three times by the time they hit 30. Mm-hmm. So it's long been said that work is something you do and not a place you go to. And we're starting to see that to an extent here as well. And is, is there a startup sort of ecosystem developing in Japan? There is all sorts of startups. There are uh, incubators for smaller companies here in Tokyo. And you're absolutely right. Uh, the younger people who uh, do have ideas cannot see themselves working for the same company for 40 years. They uh, are more driven by the idea and by the autonomy and being able to affect into reality what they have in their heads. So it's a nice change that we're seeing. It's just, uh, it's a small group at the moment. It sounds like this is a really big opportunity for Japan because there's been a lot of false dawns, hasn't there? We've both seen them over the last three decades. Um, Absolutely. You you sound quite optimistic that this could be the real deal this time. Uh, I'm talking my own book here, but yes, this is the best setup I've seen in a number of years, since Mm. probably since you and I were working together. Okay. That was, that a, was long a long time. time. Yeah. That was a very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Too long ago. <laughs> mm. and, and do you think, uh, are investors ready for the change that we're going to see from the Bank of Japan? Because sooner or later, maybe sooner, they're going to exit their yield curve control policy, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And we're going to move away from negative interest rates. Is the market, are investors prepared? I think this is actually going to be positive if and when it happens. Again, similar to what we're seeing in the US, there's competition for that marginal investment dollar, whether it be in the fixed income market, which hasn't been the case recently, and uh, or are you going to go and buy, and buy dividends? So there, there's going to be greater pressure. There's going to be greater demands for proper allocation of, of assets, which is really what a, a CFO and a CEO of a, of a listed company has to decide. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't see that as being a bad thing. Mm, this is an exciting time. I mean, Japan's been a big story of 2023. Sounds like it's yeah. going to be a big story of 2024 and hopefully for all the I, right I, reasons. I think we're in the early innings, so we shall see. But interesting. Please come and visit. I will try and do so. Yes, I haven't been to Japan for quite a while now. It's about time I did do another mm. visit. Dan, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Peter, always good. And we'll talk again soon. Be well. Thank you very much. That's Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities over in Japan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk.
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.